Tell your story, build your brand. ArtMediaNorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Now enjoy this conversation with Nate Mayers. All right, welcome. So today I'm interviewing Nate Mayers. That's, that's me. That's you, guitar extraordinaire from... Uh, you want to talk about where you're from and kind of how you got here? Yeah, it's a, it's a short story. I, I'm originally from San Diego, California, and I went to Oregon State for college. And once I graduated from there, I moved to Portland. That nice. was <laughs> it's, it's kind of nice long and summary. short of it. Yeah. All right, yeah. Nice and tidy there. All right, so where did you, well, we talked about where you grew up. Uh, can you share one or two stories from your childhood and kind of how you got into music in the first place? Yeah, I mean, it's always kind of been a part of my life. So let's see, I remember like making music at a really early age, or at least trying to. Parents got me like a guitar from a catalog when I was in preschool, and I would kind of bash around on that. My dad would make mixtapes. And I thought it was just sorcery. <laughs> so I was I was enamored uh, with learning how to make mixtapes. Yeah. And so I still, I actually, in that drawer over there, I have my, my first mixtape that I made. Very cool. It's got, like, uh, Louis Armstrong and then a bunch of pop country on it from, nice. like, 1994. <laughs> wow. So you're a wizard, really? No. No. No, I still <laughs> don't know how to make mixtapes. I... I was more fascinated with the end result, I think, okay. than the actual process. <laughs> so I know you mostly as a guitar player and a music retail guru. Uh, you do contribute largely to the podcast that Five Star Guitar has. Mm -hmm. So a guitar shop's guide to... Whatever we want to dot, talk dot, about. Dot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Nice. So uh, can you talk a little bit about your like music experience as a as a player, performer, recorder, like... Uh, and also like your retail prowess that you have gained? Yeah, sure. I mean, the job works really nicely for me because I'm able to, to play gigs and stuff like that, and I get discounts on really the only thing I spend disposable income on. <laughs> and it's like enough to pay bills, which I'm kind of happy with, at least at this point in my life. As far as like experience kind of growing up and then playing, I was I started playing... When, seriously, I suppose when I was about 13, 14 with guitar. Before that, I had played trumpet for four or five years. I was really bad. Was, was that in school? It started probably in the fourth grade. We had this thing called the Exploratory Music Program. And I originally wanted to be a fiddler. I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. And it just so happened that... I, I don't know if I wanted to play trumpet or like they needed more kids for the brass band. I remember the instructor's name was Mr. Tellinghusen. 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 That's a good name. Yeah, and he was mean. Oh. He was, he was always fine to me, but I, I practiced. And let's see, I took private trumpet lessons for a couple years. But like I, I wanted to play, you know, like Smoke on the Water and stuff. And you can't play that on the trumpet. Or you can it was like I wanted to play drums, but the drums don't sound like the guitar riff. Right. I, I think I asked someone how to play it on the drums. They started, I was like, that's not... That's not how it goes. That's not how it goes. <laughs> or on the trumpet, you can't I, do parallel fifths at the same like, time. I, I know this song. Trumpet. So I started playing the guitar. My brother, my younger brother had played the guitar before me for not terribly long. Okay. But we had a Yamaha, like, kid's guitar. And a Slammer by Hamer. Yeah. Strat copy. You know how to say both those names. Good job. Yeah. With uh, <laughs> with monster truck stickers on it. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was cool. So that's compelling for a young lad who's learning the guitar. Well, yeah. I mean, I my mom was saying, you should maybe think about playing guitar. You can accompany yourself. You know, you can take it to a party. It was like, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I'll do that. And then kind of growing up in, uh, in Temple, I grew up Jewish, and so the synagogue we went to, the cantor there was like, oh, you can, you can learn to play guitar, and then you can like help out at the services. I was like, well, if I can make money doing this, then this is, I can buy G.I. Joe's with that money. <laughs> there you go. That's important. So, 
in video games and such. So you had your incentives. Had my incentive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got into it for the right reasons, you could say. Uh, and my friend's dad offered to teach me how to play. So I remember the first song I learned was Should I Stay or Should I Go by The Clash. It's a good uh, one. I learned that one, and then I learned you know, maybe a couple other songs. And it was like four months into, into learning how to play the guitar. And he was like, so I guess I'm supposed to teach you like Jewish songs or, and I was like, nah, <laughs> that's okay. I don't, I don't need to learn those. Well, there are some pretty cool ones. So that's a, uh, I like the accompaniment and like Hava Nagila and stuff like that. It's, yeah. It's, so yeah. it like from a theoretical perspective, I guess it's kind of cool, but like if you're 14 and right. <laughs> it's it's a little less cool sounding than should I stay or should I go? Especially mm-hmm. if you're f- familiar with it. If you're like if it's new to you, then you're like, "Wow, what is this magic it's sound?" Different, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, how many hats do you feel like you're wearing sort of in your career now as a musician? Really, I'm mostly just a mostly just a guitar player. Guitar player. Which is great. That's yeah where I want to be. That's what I want to do. Playing with like three bands now ish. Uh, I mean, maybe not officially, but like, no, I, so I have a, I have the rock band and then I play with, with another band in Portland called love sloth. And that's fronted by Josh McCoskey. Mm-hmm. That's kind of his project. Uh, and that's, that's great fun. Cause you know, with the, with the rock band, it's uh it's a different kind of guitar playing than playing kind of funk and blues and and that kind of music. So it's nice because it scratches a couple different itches. You get to you get to play a lot of different things. And then I have a gig coming up in May uh playing kind of like country music sort of. So that'll be fun. I've played with I played with James before, so that's been it's a, it's a good time. It, and again, that's a that's a totally different thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot less chords, more like double stops, single note runs, and it's more playing lead guitar than playing rhythm guitar, which is what I do in the other two bands. Okay. You do rhythm in the other two bands? Pretty much exclusively. Okay. Just, I think it's more interesting. Sure. And I just don't play very fast. So it's, <laughs> it's not really flashy. So when I... When I do take a solo, I try to keep it brief, and I try to keep it to, like, three times a night. Yeah, well, Josh is, uh, you know, you mentioned Josh McCoskey in the one band in Love South, and then uh, Michael Michael's Calloway the is in the yeah, other band. Yeah, Mr. and they're both Pink. phenomenal, so it's they they can play plenty fast for, for both of us. So, Nate, yeah. how do musicians make a living? Well, a lot of people can kind of skin that cat a number of different ways. I can really only speak to to my experience... Since I play in really only original projects, gigs don't pay a whole lot of money. You know, playing in cover bands, I'm sure you'd get a lot more work and I'm sure you'd make a lot more cash. But that's that's not where I'd like to focus my my efforts. For me, it's a creative endeavor. So it's not to sound like pretentious or anything. No, that's just what's fulfilling to me. I think Uh, that's important. So for for me, I I have to work a straight job. Mm hmm. And like maybe something catches on, and I I get to do more of the do more of that, yeah, thing. yeah. But until then, it's kind of just that. And I mean, you know, kind of focus and try to uh, to do things in my job that I can apply to to bands and stuff like that. So try to use the job to grow new skills for like administrative, yeah, things. I think that's huge. So how can people better their odds for making a living in music or as an artist? I think you somewhat answered that, but if you want to expand on that some. I mean, really just try to figure out how how distribution works, how radio distribution works, what someone's going to look for. Essentially try to, you know, you can pay two and a half grand and have Never Better run a, run a distribution campaign for you. Or you figure out how to make a one sheet. You can figure out how to contact radio stations, how to, you know, license your music with ASCAP or CSAC or BMI in order to collect royalties. And then, you know, you can place it in Musicbed or you can get placement in film and TV shows and try to collect some money that way, get placement in different podcasts or uh, in different blogs or things like that, and really just try to get your music in front of as many people as you can. I think one really has to define what success is, you know, is that oh, wow, a lot of people are really into my band are, it's hard to explain. Like, no one's going to be the Beatles. 
you know, D- Dorian, who worked at yeah. the shop, is in a is in a is in a fairly success or is in a fairly successful band, Rare Monk. You know, they hundred thousand plays on Spotify, or, or many hundreds of thousands of plays. Showcased South by Southwest a number of times. They just opened for Young the Giant at uh, the Crystal Ballroom. As far as I know, he still works nine to five. Right. So, you know, you have to be fairly big or be willing to, like, put all your stuff in storage and stay out on the road all year, you know, to make the same amount of money that you would working a job and then you still have a place to go home to. Right. And it's, I think the era of where musicians make a bunch of money is long gone. Yeah. I think one has to kind of diversify Unless you're in the point zero whatever percent. (laughs) Right. Or, you know, you're touring behind uh, an already major act. Sure. So you can certainly make a living as a hired gun. Of course, you have to be a lot better than I am. And you you have to be willing to, to fit yourself, you know, in an image. Right. And if you don't want to work for someone, if that's not the life you want to have, then not, not to sound pessimistic, I just don't think, you know, going out on the road and making a bunch of money really happens a whole lot anymore. And it's a cultural shift, at least in America. And as far as I've seen elsewhere, <laughs> too, you know, I mean, I did I did a little bit of touring in Europe uh, on my own mm-hmm. and, and I, I wasn't backed by anybody and I booked my own gigs and had help from friends. But it was extremely humbling. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, and then I thought about it when I got back. It's like, well, you know, if somebody from Budapest came here and was doing a gig down the road and I didn't know who they were and I've never heard of them and I saw their flyer once, I would probably not go see them, you know, just yeah. because they came, you know, thousands of miles to get here. Right. Yeah. You know, you have to cast a wide net. Uh, my rock band opened for a band at the Twilight who had just charted in Canada. They were like number 10 on the Canadian alternative charts. I don't know what metric they're using, if that's like CBC radio or... But there were like 13 people at the show. <laughs> right. And I think we brought nine of them. Yeah. I Like it was also Monday. Right. <laughs> you, you really have to have a lot of marketing behind you yeah. in order to in order to fill venues and mm-hmm. sell tickets. And you have to constantly keep people engaged. And at the same time, today's consumer doesn't like to be sold to. Right. <laughs> It's a slippery slope. Uh, right. Yeah. Well, and as a salesperson, like, I, I get it. So it's not... It's not spam. Right. That's not going to help anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. And so blasting people with, like, we're doing this, you have to see this. Nobody cares. Right. But if you can get any amount of organic reach that you can build, that's really how you build a brand these days. Stay as consistent as possible for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And slowly but surely, you'll build a following out of out of people that are that are meaningful, right? Who you'll interact with and they'll interact with you. And that's one of the great things about about social media is it kind of gives you a bullhorn to be able to do that. But at the same time, like to what end are those companies harvesting data from from users and I think people are starting to get hip to this thing that's been happening since the inception of the technology and people are starting to rethink the relationship with that. So even now the industry's constantly in flux and every everything's kind of changing change change is like volatile Mm -hmm. these days yeah there's a post i think it's kevin kelly 1000 true fans have you heard of that What's the 1,000 true fans? You tell me about that. Yeah. So basically what a person needs or a band needs or an artist needs is 1,000 true fans. Um, Mavens is another word for that. But basically people who are enthusiastically embracing your whatever the thing is and sharing it. And then it's creating something that is shareable as well, which is so basically from that it grows. Mm -hmm. And that is what a person needs to sustain themselves according to the, I think it's a blog post. I think that's the difference. The Beatles had so many true fans, but that was so long ago. But also what the Beatles were doing was... It was new-ish. Yeah, it was certainly a different... I mean, white people playing black music at the time had been forever. Skiffle had been a thing forever. And Elvis. Right. Uh, It's... I think what the Beatles did is just wrote killer songs. Yeah. And were really harnessed the power of the studio at the time. And I mean, a lot of luck, yeah. too, They're in this business is luck. Yeah, right place, right time, right you know demographic and all that stuff. There's a lot of factors. 
Did the place and time that you grew up and mentors that you had impact how you learned? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started playing guitar, Guitar Hero 3 had just come out, so it dates myself a little bit. I'm 25. Yeah. So I'm pretty young. So naturally, you know, you learn the songs that are that are on the game. And so the songs that are on the game are like Slow Ride, Rock and Roll All Night. I, I imagine around, because you've been teaching guitar a long time, so yeah. around 2006, 2007, mm-hmm. these are probably popular songs with the children. Right. Rocky Like a Hurricane, yeah. Sweet Child of Mine, was that was Sweet Child of Mine? No, I don't think it was. Welcome to the Jungle was on that okay. Was on that game. So, you know, you start to learn things like that, School's Out, Sunshine of Your Love, and that kind of, that we, oddly enough, that game introduced me to so much great music. You know, like, not just the music that was on the game, but, like, the, the stuff that those artists did apart from the hits. So that was really influential to me. Not only that, but, like, having, after I finished taking lessons with, with Tony, my friend's dad, we got lessons at the Blue Guitar with a guy named Steve Nichols. And Steve had been a musician for years, plays in a band in San Diego called Crosswinds, and plays in a band called the Gypsy Swing Cats. They're incredible. They're really, he's, he's a phenomenal guitar player. And Steve would just kind of be like, all right, so what do you, what do you want to learn? And like, I don't know, this maybe? So he would kind of teach it to me, but then he would try to teach me the theory behind it. Right. And you use this scale, these chords and whatever. I just couldn't put it together. I, Funny. It was not what I was interested in. I was interested in like playing the Judas that Priest rift. <laughs> but what he did teach me was how to uh, like the very, very basics for playing blues. And from there, it just kind of took off for me. I really dove into that because it, for the first time, it was something that I was, I was really into heavy metal and hard rock. And this was this thing that sounded great that seemed attainable to me. Nice. You know, it it was okay. Well, this is something that I can do well, or yeah. that I that I that I can see myself doing well, mm-hmm. and I don't have to play a million notes a minute for it to happen. So I I kind of started to do that at the time. Let's see, I was fifteen or so. Um, I took lessons with him for probably six months to a year, somewhere in there. And then after that, I just kind of looked up YouTube videos and stuff like that. So knowing that that information's out there, you can, as long as you know how to sift through the, the good and bad information, <laughs> right. you There's know, a lot we, of both. Right. I think we live in a time where you can learn as much as you're willing to. Yeah. Information isn't the problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's putting in the time, you know, to really get it. In your opinion, what are some of the best ways someone can learn the skills that you've cultivated as a guitarist, as a communications person, salesperson, whatever you want to call it? Oh, I mean, like, you just have to do it. Yeah, that, that's probably the biggest thing, at least with, I think, everyone uh, Everyone will tell you, like, the biggest thing with music is you have to practice. You, you teach a lot of young guitar students, and I think anyone that thinks they're just going to, it's just going to work for them overnight isn't they're not being realistic about it or like when somebody buys a guitar say well how long is it going to take me to get good at it to be able to play like you and it's like well i've been i've been playing for over 10 years and i'm still better than some not as good as others sure so it's so you've only been playing for 10 years 10 11 years yeah wow i was so bad comparatively (laughs) after 10 years because you're really good at the guitar like Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, it's it's really just kind of sitting down and and, and doing it with with anything with sales. I don't I don't necessarily like, of course, my job is to put money in the till and and to do that. These these people come in and they're excited to learn a new skill or they're excited to take on a new endeavor. And I'm excited to give them the information and kind of the advice that they need to to continue on it. So for me, it's not about selling you a first guitar. It's about showing you how great this is and helping you find the right thing for how much money you want to spend. That makes a lot of sense. It's not... You're not forcing somebody into something. They came in because they want to learn an instrument and buy an instrument, and you're kind of helping give them some knowledge. And Right. All I, all I can do is give you all the information to make the decision, but you, at the end of the day, have to be the one to say, well, I want to buy this guitar. Are there times when like, maybe I'll push a little harder because it's a higher pressure sale and I want to... I want to sell a $3,000 amplifier. Of course I want to sell a $3,000 amplifier. Like that's that's great. We don't work on commission, but it feels it feels really good. 
And it sounds really good. Like you know that there's a the after effect of it is a lot of a lot of joy coming out of hearing and playing through that. You know? Right, and that I suppose that's one of the that's one of the things about working working at a guitar store that's really really nice. You know, you get to you get to talk to a lot of different people, and oftentimes we we won't talk. We'll talk about the specs and stuff like that, but we'll talk about well, what kind of music do you listen to? What do you want to play? And then you start talking about artists, and you start talking about all, all sorts of stuff. You know, what do you do for work? As long as people feel like you're, they, that you just want to talk to them and you're, you're genuinely interested in their, in their lives. And I, I am, I like, I like talking to people and hearing their stories and stuff. So people end up coming back and, and, and trusting you. you That's fulfilling work. Yeah. And to some people it's like going in, clocking in and then, you know, maybe doing some stuff until you leave. Not anyone that, that I work with currently for, for other people at other shops, I'm sure that's how it is. Sure. Well, it's noticeably that way sometimes yeah. when you go some places. So how should people go about finding their passion or starting their creative life? How oh, I don't would know. you recommend? Just go try stuff. It's there. If you like working with your hands, there's a lot of cool things. If you like, uh, I don't know, like one thing a lot of people maybe don't know is I really like uh, throwing pottery. I haven't been able to do it since high school, but I was pretty good at it. And if I if I could have a wheel here, I would I would play a lot less guitar because I would do that. <laughs> yeah. I kind of I kind of get into weird things. Yeah, just do them. Yeah, that's got to be fun. Like, yeah, it's it looks like it would be a lot of fun. I haven't done it much, just in like art in school. Yeah, you know, a million years ago. But I, but you just go try stuff, and if you find you have a knack for something, keep going with it. If you don't have a knack for something, chances are you won't, and that frustrates you. And keep going. Maybe eventually you won't be frustrated. Yeah. So there's a saying, follow your bliss. Do you do you feel like that is a, a good thing? Oh. Or is it too vague? <laughs> I think it's kind of vague and it's also kind of a double-edged sword in a, in a sense. If I followed my bliss, I would be smoking weed and watching Netflix all day. I would be perfectly happy doing that. It would be no problem. But I am a firm believer that, you know, one only has so much a finite amount of time, you know, on the earth. And at, and when you're gone, you're just kind of gone. Many can speculate about an afterlife. I, I don't think there's any point. <laughs> uh, so I guess just do, do whatever makes you happy. Whatever, whatever that is, do as much as you can of it. Do you feel like people are, their lives are more enriched when they're sort of helping somebody else out in some way? Yeah, I mean, I think helping others certainly makes you feel good. I think that's true. I, I had actually, I, I was thinking about thinking about that recently, like when uh, when one helps others, and if they do it because they feel because it makes them feel good, it, is it really a selfless act? And I I think it is. I think I just end up overthinking it. <laughs> no, that's a good <laughs> it's, point. It, it's a little bit selfish, I think, but it's also selfless because you're really. But the end result helps someone in need. So, yeah. So I suppose you get a pass on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so how has technology changed music and creative arts in general? Oh, well, it's democratized them greatly. Like we were saying earlier, Facebook and social media and essentially the the Internet has allowed anyone to put their stuff out there. So on one end, you're able to have this great reach that you never would have had without a label and a manager and, or a publisher if you're an author or an agent. But there's so much out there that the industry is so inundated with, for lack of a lack of a better term, not very good art. I would consider it subjectively bad. I don't. I don't think anything's uh, objectively awful. There's things like you know, if you go back in time, Andy Warhol's art and you know Jackson Pollock and stuff like that. I mean, there's a ton of people that are rabid fans of that stuff, and then there's other people that are just like, meh, it doesn't do anything for me, or I don't get it, you know. Sure, but so. I, but Pollock was an incredibly talented painter. It wasn't just splatters. Right. It. Um, no, I love Jackson Pollock. There was a, in uh, Buffalo in the Albright Knox Art Gallery. There's a Jackson Pollock there, and I actually had to write a paper on it in school. And mm -hmm. then when I came to Portland State and started studying with my teacher Brian Johansson there, I walked in and the first print on an, on my left was the same mm. print of that painting, and I was just like, oh my god! So it was like this immediate connection yeah. to my past, which I thought was cool. We both moved. When did you? What year did you move? Here, here, I was 21, so a million years ago. Uh, <laughs> back, back before cars existed. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was 
one. Okay, so two years before I was born. The city must have changed yeah. immensely. Yeah. Have you have you always lived outside the city or No, I lived downtown. I was I lived on campus at Portland State for two years, one year in the Montgomery, one year in the Ondine, and then I also lived in North Portland on Wabash at one point in time. Mm-hmm. And then uh, mostly I've been in uh, Hillsboro, Aloha, and Beaverton. It's crazy. I've, I've only lived in Beaverton. Oh, really? When I was thinking about moving up here, I was like certain I was going to live in Gresham. It's so funny. You seem like an east side guy. <laughs> it's like I'm going to move to Gresham. I'm right. going to get a chemistry set. <laughs> I'm going to fit right in. This will be fine. And all of my friends in college were like, don't move to Gresham. What are you thinking? It's like, guys... It'll be fine. I don't understand what could be what could possibly be, be that bad about Gresham. You're like uh, it's the worst place. I'm like yeah, all I hear is it's cheap. <laughs> right. Well, there's something to be said for that. It's very uh, expensive these days living here. Well, and then I ended up uh, off of 117th in Beaverton, which was also cheap, and I found out why quickly yeah my my first day in uh in portland we were unloading stuff from the truck and the guy and a guy walks up to me he starts talking to me about stuff he's like hey man you ever need anything like drugs a hand cannon you give me a call and he gave me his number and like jumped into his mazda with a huge spoiler and just like (laughs) this is welcome to beaver wow i thought this was a nice place yeah well, what's so funny is because Portland is a relatively, it's a relatively clean city. It's a relatively safe city mm-hmm. compared to a lot. But yeah, there's, you know, there's shady people everywhere, I guess. All right. So moving on. Uh, so how has technology changed music and creativity for you specifically? Well, I, I'm just, I'm able to do a lot more. I didn't know how to do anything in Photoshop until I just looked it up. I probably would have had to take a class 10 years ago. Now I don't. <laughs> it's amazing. Uh, yeah, I, it's incredible what you can learn. Yeah. Just spending some time. One video I watched on uh, filmmaking said, write down all of these things that you should learn. He said, find three videos on each of those things, watch each one twice, and then go do it mm-hmm. um, and put it to use. Because it's, you know, doing is... Well, that's what's going to make it what, stick. What ha- yeah, exactly. When did music become your business, and how has your job changed over the years? I guess it became like fully what I did when I started a couple of years ago when I started working at the shop. Before that, I had I had always wanted to be a musician, uh, and always you know played in bands and and things like that. But you know, I always figured like, all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna get through college. I'm gonna get this history degree. I'm going to go be a teacher. That's what I'm going to do. History degree. Yeah, I I didn't want to... That ended up not being great. Uh, There was this professor who was like, the only way for you people to learn is to have someone who's much smarter than you, i.e. me, uh, stand up here and lecture you for two hours, and then you're going to go home and write a thousand words about it. No, no. Paying too much money for for this to be a thing. So (laughs) I've got bands to go play in. I'm not... I'm not going to do this. So did that happen, the history degree? or No, I switched to a degree in digital communications because I could get school credit for working at the radio station. Cool. Yeah, it's been a lot of short-sighted decision-making. Things like that. It was like, oh, I can get, get language credits for studying abroad. I can drink there, right? Perfect. Yeah, I'm going. I can get paid and get these nine credits knocked out and hang out at the radio station. And have an office with air conditioning. I'm there. <laughs> That's pretty savvy uh, education there. <laughs> if, you can, if you can swing it. Yeah. Um, so you went to Sicily? Yeah, yeah, I studied abroad in Sicily. It was actually, it was kind of funny. It was like an anthropology heavy. Before, when I was thinking about switching my major, I was thinking about switching to anthropology because I've always kind of enjoyed that. And our professor, the first day of class, was like, okay, so everyone has to do a presentation about the local culture. And there was this whole list of stuff, and one of them was viticulture, so winemaking. And nobody, for whatever reason, nobody had called it by the time it was my turn. And I said, viticulture, that's that's me. And I'm this 19-year-old kid there. And I go up to the professor afterwards, and he's like, and I'm like, hey, so listen, for my presentation, I want to run a wine tasting. And he's like, 
Yeah, that sounds great. Um, go buy a bunch of stuff, bring it back, give me the receipt, and I'll reimburse you. Okay, great. I'll, can we do it next Friday? So I went and bought like 40, 50 euros worth. Of, like none of it was good wine. Like I, that was not the point. Uh, <laughs> and we, we had a wine tasting in class run, run by an underage student. In Italy. In, in Italy. Uh, not underage there, but. Right, right. Um, I don't think there was one Italian in the class. Oh, funny. So everybody was uh, from. Yeah. From here or from different From places? Oregon State, yeah. A couple of students from Portland State. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, that was my, that was my favorite memory of, uh, of that. I, there, I have a lot of favorite memories from it. Uh, we had, uh, we had four day weeks. So it was Monday through Thursday. I know I said the tasting was on a Friday. That I don't remember a lot. We had Monday through Thursday, and then Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you just like do whatever you wanted. We found out that like you take the bus system, like just to different towns and cities and stuff. You get a you get a rail pass, and it's not that hard to get around this island. So my roommate and I, we like snorkeled all summer. Uh, went to various cafes and bars and like different festivals around churches. There's this one in a place called Achitreza called the Swordfish Festival. We just caught wind of it. We we're like, all right, well, we have to figure out what this is about. Uh, and for six euros, you got a, lo- a little loaf of sem- semolina bread. You got like a little side salad, a swordfish steak that was about that big, and a cup like this full of white wine. We're like, well, this is this is great. And then we just found as many of those as we could. It was it was a good summer. So was it culture shock for you in a way? In some sort ways, of. I mean, it was a little weird, like landing in Rome, and then they say the announcements over the PA in Italian, and they don't say them in English. You're like, oh well, I have to find my gate. I don't know where that is. And they changed it like three times. Oh wow. So I just had to like I just had to like find the gate and then just follow the herd of people and like I magically made the plane. Wow. Got off, got through customs. They didn't look in my bag. I was like, this is it. Excellent. So now I'm at the airport in Sicily where even less people speak English. And I have to get from the airport to this hotel. Or not to the hotel, the like the place we're staying. I don't know where that is. I don't know where any of this is. I know they said I could take a bus. But like I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna get a cab. That'll at least hopefully get me closer. And it did. Did it work? Yeah, yeah, I, I made it. Well, good job. <laughs> so, what is a song, album, or artist that you would recommend listening to? I feel like whatever whatever I answer, I'm gonna be, be like, oh, I should have <laughs> oh, said, said this. Yeah. yeah. I would recommend everybody listen to Father John Misty's third record, which is pure comedy. I think it's really good. Other than I think the songs are really strong. I think the instrumentation is really good. I think the arrangements are also really good. Nice. What is the instrumentation? Uh, he's got like he has a traditional band, but he's got there's a lot of orca- orchestration in it. And okay. So it's just the parts are really well crafted. What dec- decade was that recorded? In? I think it was released three, four years ago. Yeah, it's just really good. Nice. People say it reminds them of Elliot Smith. I I can hear it, but it's different. Okay, nice. I'll check it out. Is creativity or skill more important as a musician slash artist? I'd say both are important in their in their own way. You know, I try to do the most with uh, with the skill that I have, and I guess that's where being creative comes into it. Like, if you're going to be a hired musician and you need to play parts exactly as they can, then I would suppose skill is is really important if you're going to be participating in writing an album or things like that then of course skill is important but how creative you're able to be and how you're able to to use the tools you have is is more important i think there was there's like a a survey that people did on the streets of new york or something that gave people a brick they're like what would what would you do with this brick and you're like oh well i could build a foundation i could build it's like things you could do with just a brick and the people that were more creative were like oh well i could use it as a paperweight i could use it as a doorstop i could use it any number of ways that you could only use one brick things like that cut it up into a hundred little tiny bricks and build a tiny house it's that's creative it's uh, it's a lot more work than I think is really worth I think it. So you'd have a lot of dust. 
What are some difficult times you faced as an artist? Oh, well, I mean, every everyone kind of struggles with their with whatever it is they're they're kind of going through. For me, bouts of anxiety uh, followed by bouts of depression. When one feels like one's stagnating in their career, I think you kind of feel lost, and that'll uh, that'll impact all all aspects of your life. Yeah, I mean, just general general mental health issues fairly common for everyone it is yeah that is as a as an artist you've felt that or as that's in general well as an individual yeah and then let's see in uh in college there was like a bout where i had broken up with girlfriend and i had just turned 21 so i had all this access to to alcohol and I was not living at my parents' place, so there was no one that was like, hey, buddy, you really probably shouldn't like start drinking at 9 in the morning until you pass out at 2, get up at 4, and then drink again until you pass out at 10. Nobody said that. Nobody said that, so I just did that. You found that out the hard way. So <laughs> it's I, just like, oh. So, I mean, you know, you... So you worked through that. Yeah. Figured it out. Yeah, fi- figured it out. I was like, That's, that might not be the, the best way to, to live one's life. Some great memories. <laughs> I was like, I remember that as a fun time. And I, my friend was like, I just remember you crying like every night. <laughs> so this is the, the I difference, was like, right? <laughs> well, you got it out, I guess. You, I, know, you just needed to get it out, I guess. I suppose. Um, I And I mean, you know, there are a number of evenings where like you wake up in your bed and you're like, I don't, how do I get home? Why are my pants off? Sounds like uh, lyrics in a song. I haven't figured out how to put them in there. So I guess... The same, the same amount of difficulty as anyone else, I suppose. Yeah. How have you learned to overcome adversity? Well, I'd say that's something I'm still learning how to do. I think we all continue sure. to learn how to do it throughout, throughout our entire lives. I, you just gotta, at least for me, I have to try to just kind of push through it and and do the things that that are hard. So for me, it'll like any of that will kind of manifest itself as like avoidance of a situation. It's like, oh, well, I don't know how to... Escapism or... Yeah. yeah. And so that's probably what I struggle with the most. And exercising in, uh, in like, just confronting an issue and, and taking care of it is probably the, the biggest thing. How important is music to film and video storytelling? Oh, I think it's a huge component of it. You know, you, you can watch a scary movie with, without the sound, and it's a lot less scary. True. I think it really helps set the mood of a scene. You think of, like... The, the cliche example to use would be the the Mr. Yell the Mr. Blonde scene in Reservoir Dogs where he's dancing around and cuts the cop's ear off without stuck in the middle with you. That that scene's disgusting. There's a lot of those scenes that are disgusting in in a lot of those films. Yeah. But but the music really is incredible. Like it's such a good fit. Right. Well, and that that's kinda of how Tarantino directs. You know, yeah. you can he's a nut. He is insane. But you, he talks about making movies like, well, yeah, in my head, I figured, oh, the music will do this and the camera will do this. Really, he's talking about cutting on beat and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I think it's I think it's wildly important. Yeah. The ones I'm more familiar with are Pulp Fiction and Kill Bill 1 and 2. Like, just... But without the music... The music just is so awesome. Mm-hmm. And then, like, there's, there is, like, fierce comedy in... Mixed in with all of the like mm-hmm. just crazy stuff that's happening. Yeah. And and the delivery. I think the acting's so good. Yeah. Like Samuel L. Jackson's just so good. Yeah. Or like in Apocalypse Now in the first scene of Willard in the uh in the hotel room in Saigon and the, the tree line blowing up to the doors the end. And that song's a consistent theme throughout the movie. It plays again at Kurtz's camp. It's it's just really well done. When you write your songs, do you ever get imagery? I mean, obviously there's some imagery in the songwriting itself, but do you ever imagine like it being in a film or like how it would fit with certain types of scenes or whatever? No, not really. No. Okay. That's just something that left the filmmaker to figure out. I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. Somebody else writes the, the chord progression, but you're finding your parts. Oh, that just comes down to sheer consumption. For musicians, listen to as much music as you can, listen to as many different types of music as you can, and listen to it as often as you can, and eventually you'll just have melodies and stuff kicking around in your head, and it'll... It'll, here, if you want to pass me the the acoustic guitar. Sure. So, like, if you have... 
Okay, cool, that's tuned. Um, if you have a chord progression like... You know, what could kind of fit over that, and then you... You can kind of piece it together. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I don't know if that's helpful. I think it's helpful. It's great to hear the example. I like that. Thank you. Not that those would go like necessarily to get, but in the same sort of song, you know, think about what kind of mood you want to evoke and theory really helps with that. It'll kind of give you a roadmap and well, what's, show you where you can go. Yeah. What's cool about that is there was, there was theory applied, like the notes that you chose as you're sort of like on the strong beats mm -hmm. were tonal to the key, but then you had chromaticism where you were moving towards something mm -hmm. uh, through notes outside of the key. So right. that's cool. It's good stuff. Creates motion. Mm -hmm. So how well does the system work for people and for musicians? The system in quotes. The system, man. Yeah, the system, man. I talk about it at length. I... I don't think that our society is necessarily set up to to give people a fair shake as much as we would like to believe it is. And I mean, if you're going to decide to be an artist and not really make any money, that's I'm going to assume you're not doing it for the money. So even outside of that, if you don't have a degree or if you have a bachelor's in, in certain, you went and got your bachelor's in art or got your bachelor's in in music or things like that, and you don't want to be a music educator things like that there there are certain paths that are that are laid out for you that you can that like that this is what you can do or after that that's that's as good as it's going to get it's perplexing to me when people just say oh just, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you're if you're graduating and i was i was fortunate enough to to graduate from college with no debt that helps yeah that so that helps a great deal but for those in a different situation than myself you know you you have these payments and any job wants three to five years experience for an entry level position. How are you supposed to until somebody just gives you a break? Right. Or if if you don't have a college degree, you can only get so far in life. It used to be like, oh, well, you could be a journeyman somewhere. You can do this. You can do that. There's so much. And now people won't even look at that unless you have a college degree. And even getting into college, if you don't test well. How is that if you if you have test anxiety or, or things like that? I don't I don't consider myself to be an exceedingly smart person. When I took the SAT, it was out of twenty four hundred, I scored fourteen hundred. So I missed a thousand points. A lot of that was because I didn't study. Some of it was because I was nervous. Yeah. And the reason I didn't study is because I was nervous. I, I don't, th I think the way that we currently assess people's worth is supremely backwards. And I think once somebody doesn't fit the mold of what our society wants them to be, we cast them aside. And I don't really think that's okay. We, we demonize things like drug and alcohol abuse and things like that. And we don't worry about the root causes that actually that can cause these things. Pain it's, is at the source of it. There's a... Oh, out of anything, yeah. you know? And we don't... Because we're not addressing the root causes, we end up just punishing these people. Or, you know, and then once something's on your record, you can't get a job. And once you can't get a job, you still have to make money. And so how are you going to go make money? Well, any way you can. And we, we've essentially manufactured a criminal at that point. It's, it's rather rather heartbreaking the sort of get ahead at all costs mindset that that i think we as a society have it a whole as a whole and that that doesn't even get into like oh well, we need to tax the rich or have universal health care or things like that there are so many things where like if you're not in good health and in good social standing like you can forget about all of these things that you're just supposed to have i don't think anyone should really have to make the the distinction like should i pay rent or should i put food on the table should i pay my electric bill or should i pay or should i have insurance right that with the world we live in today i don't i think these things are a fundamental human right you know access to health care access to access to food access to water it's an access to to living situation if you believe in inalienable human rights like life liberty and property people People should be able to take that from you. These are the problems we face as a society. Well, we face a lot of problems. Yeah. I think the big the big one is greed. 
you know, how much how much does any one person need before you're just happy? Right. <laughs> well, there's plenty of people with plenty. Right. That are unhappy. Yeah. Um, and vice versa <laughs> without that are unhappy and plenty without that are very happy, you know? Mm-hmm. So, well, I think it was something like after you make over a hundred thousand dollars a year, um, quality of life is negligible between somebody that makes $2 million a year and a hundred thousand dollars a year. Right. Yeah. It's, it's like if you can afford all of your bills and everything is paid and, all that you're in good standing, you're 9% happier on average. Right. And then once you get beyond that, that doesn't increase your happiness is what I've heard. How well do schools prepare kids for the real world? Oh, that's a bad question for me because (laughs) I didn't try very hard in school. Is that the fault of the school or of you or of the education system or... Some combination. Uh, if you had asked 14-year-old Nathan, it would have been the school's fault, 100%. Of <laughs> uh, but now that you're asking me, 100% my fault. So many more opportunities, but I, I just kind of chose to, to, to fuck around. I mean, it was cool. I learned how to play the guitar. Yep, that's about it. So, I mean, everyone's on their own path. <laughs> so You'll true. You'll either learn it the hard way or learn it the easy way. <laughs> I seem to have learned almost everything the hard way <laughs> over the years. Everything that I've learned so far. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us about current projects that you're working on? We've touched upon some of the bands that you play with and where you would like to focus your energy over the next few years. Let's All say. my projects are top secret. Okay. No. Um, you'd tell me, but you'd have to kill me. I would. Yeah. I would. Uh, no, I am. Let's see. Just writing a bunch right now. Writing a whole lot. And can you talk about your process with writing? Yeah, um, I usually write a chord progression or something and then think about things that go with it, and it's not terribly scientific. I don't sit down and go, I'm going to write a song today. Right. I know that is how some people do it. I was was never able to do it that way. I don't know. I I think of something, and then I think of the band it might fit in, and then I bring it to that person and kind of workshop it and see what happens. Do you do any solo projects, solo recording? No, I would like to, but I just haven't written any songs that I think would suit that. I don't I don't know what I would want my solo project to be. I'm trying to develop a uh a taco recipe. That's been good. That's <laughs> taco recipe. Taco recipe. Yeah. Nice. Well, well tacos are good. It's vegan taco filling, so okay. it's uh it's always a work in progress. Every time gets a little bit better. Have you had the impossible burger yet? Yeah, it's uh, it's the best one out there, but I still rather have a portobello mushroom just grilled. Those are delicious. Yeah, it's surprisingly meaty. With lemongrass. and Have you had that at Stanford's? With lemongrass? Yeah. Stanford's? No. Yeah. No, restaurants with only last names are too expensive for me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, the Indian food you bought yesterday is more expensive than the... Uh, yeah, 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 than, probably than the portobello is. mushroom burger at Stanford's. So. Yeah, but the dosa was calling my name. It was, I was delicious. I was like, though. I needed yeah. the chutney. And <laughs> uh, what current or future plans do you have for music, arts, creative works, and business? Do you mean before I write a mega hit? Yeah. I plan on doing exactly what I'm doing. <laughs> nice. For as long as I can. Hopefully, record a couple albums in the next uh, in the next couple of years with with various projects and put them out. Get a little bit better at releasing stuff every time. Maybe tour a little bit. Play some festivals. That's great. Yeah. I think it's awesome that you're doing what you want to do. Yeah. What are one or two memorable stories from your music career so far? Oh, well, there are many. Yeah. So another another Corvallis story. We played this show called the Tour de Franzia, which for the unanointed, Franzia is, uh, I believe, the world's most popular wine. Uh, it comes in a box because glass is wasteful. And the idea is you dress up in a costume and you get just really wine drunk and ride your bike around in a costume. So it's really safe. Uh, And then you end up at this giant party in a park and there are bands there. And so I just remember also being blasted playing to a crowd of like 150 to 200 just drunk college students. So everyone was in a similar mindset. And the energy was incredible. 
I remember looking up, there was like a kid in the rafters in this like awning that were not an awning, like a, like a shelter that we were in pouring wine out of the bag onto the crowd. Uh, I drank wine out of Camelback and we finished the end of our set and I looked over and the bass player is, he has his bass strings and he's slamming his bass on the ground and trying to break the strings and then he does. It was wild. That was that was pretty crazy. You meet some interesting people playing music. Like I don't know if you've if this has happened to you, but like like crazies will just come talk to you. Yes, <laughs> it has happened to me. Okay, in the they, restroom is always fun. Yeah. So yeah, do they talk to you on the street too? Like when you're not playing music, do people just like come up and accost you? And not often. Okay, I they mean, yeah. always talk to me. It's like okay. I have a homing beacon. <laughs> Exclusively crazy people talk to me. It's phenomenal. That's why you're here. This is <laughs> <laughs> so at a gig recently, I, I'm hanging out on set break and lady comes up. She's talking to my bandmate. They're talking. She doesn't know me, so I'm just quiet. She, she looks at me. She starts asking me questions and stuff. I don't, she's clearly drunk. I don't really want to have this conversation right now. Like one word answers, trying to be nice. <laughs> right. That's always a tough line to tell. Uh, and she just looks at me and she's like, I love your aura. Are you prophetic? I'm like, nope, nope. <laughs> You're not. Uh, and she's like, so you've never been driving on the, the road and be like, I should change lanes right now. And then a car crash happens in front of you. Literally never. And she just goes on and on about like this, this aura that I supposedly have. I thought I had an aura once. I think it was just gas. <laughs> and uh methane (laughs) yeah that's my aura (laughs) and she she keeps talking and talking she's like be prepared to embrace the millions that are coming to you and my bandmate's like can i have some like sure buddy of course (laughs) share the wealth i guess (laughs) you you know it she's like not millions of dollars shit millions of people can i have like twenty dollars can i have some money i don't need a lot but some would be cool and she keeps talking, 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 talking. And she's like, the woman you are with is very lucky to have you. You will be blessed with a child in the next two years. I'm like, false. <laughs> no. So like now I have this prophecy where there will be millions coming to me, not money. And I'm going to have a kid <laughs> in the next two years. So I have no money and a child. That are that's theoretically not a good situation. Happy. No. I've done that. So, so that's what's going to happen. It, you asked for my plans for the future. I guess I'm just waiting for this prophecy to come true. Wow. I'm not terribly excited about it. Yeah, it's not It's not a life for everybody, <laughs> you know? If you're doing what you want right now, then that's not going to fit into those plans. Those are good stories. Thank you. Yeah. So what other books, artists, musicians, photographers, creative people would you recommend? Like, if you want to think about each one of those. So books. Oh, man. I think everyone should read uh, Henry Rowe and Sweet Thursday. Just because I like him so much. Um, John Steinbeck is really easy to read, too. It's not... They're not, like, difficult books. Like, I feel like if you have a handle on Harry Potter, you can figure it out. Let's see. Films. I like movies a lot. I would recommend... I You know, it kind of depends what you're into, but I... So, so Kevin Spacey did awful things for years, but American Beauty is, like, one of my favorite movies of all time and like I love it so much that I don't know that I could stop watching it after everything that's come out about him not to excuse like any any of the things that that like he for sure did but that 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 movie for me was just kind of like right place right time I was a senior in high school really into existentialism and just there's this guy that just gave up I was like oh that's me <laughs> this is great so I love that film I really like The Big Lebowski is probably my favorite comedy. And then music. I I don't know, just interact with art and stuff. Yeah. It's yeah, you know, creative things. Find stuff that you're into and go with it. Yeah. So what would your advice to 16-year-old Nathan be if you could go back and give that young man some advice or some tips? Oh, he wouldn't listen. Of course. <laughs> But is there anything you've learned along your way that you wish you would have learned maybe at a younger age? Or would you just do it the same? feel like I would have to. 
I, I think there are probably things that I should have done differently, but I'm not certain that if I was told to do them differently that it would have even... I try, I try not to think about that a whole lot. So how do musicians and creative artists keep from being obscure or obsolete, unknown? Oh, I mean, there's so much luck involved that like it's hard to... I don't think that should be anybody's end goal. Right. You know, to... To be known. If you're doing it to be famous, you're not doing it for the right reasons. You should do it. Like, I understand, like, wanting to put in the effort and, like, being able to take it as far as it will go. Right. But that's the operative phrase, right? Like As far as it will go. That's well put, actually. But you can't expect to be the next, you know, Beatles or whatever. Or sure. Arctic Monkeys or whatever it is you're you're wanting to do there's just so many things that have to go your way or people you have to know but if you want to take it as far as you will go nothing beats networking you have to go out and network you can't be too tired to go out to a show that's not yours you've got to go out and meet people you have to make people believe in you right you know luck god there's some stupid tony robbins-esque phrase but i think it's so true it's like luck is where opportunity and preparedness meet So you can practice and be really prepared so that when you get offered that big show from the friend that you met, who's in a bigger band, that's going to net, that's in front of a few hundred people and you're going to be able to sell a bunch of merch and you're going to be able to get like, say 20 of those people to your next show right? and get 30 Facebook likes or whatever. And you have to do that consistently. So consistency is a big part of it as well. Stay as consistent as possible for as long as possible and don't slack off. Right. Like it's, it's a lot of stupid hard work. You know, if you wait for someone to give you a record deal, you're going to be waiting a long fucking time. True. Very true. Yeah. Another way that I've heard that put is, you know, the harder I work, the luckier I am basically. And I mean, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be good at your job to be a hard worker. You just have to put in the work. Yeah. And then you get better. And then you get better. Right. I think that is a, it's a running theme through these podcasts. (laughs) So how important do you feel like music and the arts are to society? Oh, incredibly. And and any examples of that? Oh, well, I mean, forms of escapism are incredibly important. You know, when we, when we spend all day worried about, you know, different things like this proposal, that proposal, I have to work on this project or I have to pay this bill. It's nice to go out and see a show or like do something that for the price of going out to dinner, I can fucking not worry for an hour and a half. And I can, I can like have this experience that I get to, that I just, I just have now, you know, I I, like that. It's, it is an experience. I think that's hugely important. A lot of people put a lot of emphasis on, on stuff, on material things. And I think our experiences are really what That's what we defines have. us, yeah. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. Like, I have a lot of stuff. Stuff I'll never use. <laughs> but no, experiences are incredibly important. So should musicians and creative artists just go for it or get a stable job and do their art on the side? You've kind of spoken about this, but... Yeah, I mean, it depends on what you value, Right. I, I like what I have here. Mm-hmm. So I like the security of having a stable job. That makes me feel a lot better about stuff. For me, you know, number not having to worry about what bills I'm going to be able to pay this month allows me to really focus on stuff. Mm-hmm. And in the time that I have to focus on stuff, I'm able to do that. You can do your best work because you're not stressed out about... Right, and that's just how it works for me. If people don't care about stuff, I like what I have here. And I feel I'm able, just the way my mind works, I'm able to do a, to work a lot better and a lot, with a lot more volume, the things that I, that I want to do if I don't have to worry about what bills I'm going to pay. Yeah. Other people value things differently, right? So, you know, I, I want to have a space where I can come back to and like my computer and my cat's here. I have all my stuff. You know, I get to sleep in the same bed every night and like, I don't, it's clean-ish. Like, I don't, I don't have to worry about stuff. Right. Not to say that I don't think I'd be fine, like, living as a bohemian as well. But I did, I did that. That gets tiring. Yeah. So this is, I don't know, for where I'm at right now, this is nice. But I can't speak for anyone else other than myself. That makes sense. So what is the difference between, that you see between professional musicians, semi-professionals, and hobbyists? 
So if you think of three levels... it's a good question. How are we defining professional? <laughs> good question. So I think, I think professional, as in a majority of their income, comes from this one thing. Okay. As opposed to they make some money doing it, as opposed to they're just learning it and it's just for fun. Okay. Well, I suppose, like, really the ability to show up and be on the ball... Yeah. ...is something that, like, a professional... Someone... I have encountered very few. Someone someone like Ben Jones, who's a real pro. Yeah. Who's just, like, he's just great. He's just great. Or Jonathan Chase, another bass player, who has a day gig, but, like, has played with, with Victor Wooten and just stupid good. Or Chandler Bowerman, the regular drummer for Love Sloth, makes all his money playing gigs. Okay. I don't think I've ever seen him miss a beat, ever. And, like, the, the one's always, always on the one. It's not behind. It's not in front of... It's on the one every time another thing is just like the ability to be versatile i can approximate a number of different guitar styles but i can really only play rock like i can play rock i can play some seven and nine chords so i guess i can fake blues i can i can play some some jazzy style chords but i can't play jazz to save my life but like for somebody to show up and be able to do all of those things convincingly you know someone like 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 chris miller who goes out and plays on the road with dave alvin and he can play who was in the blasters uh dave's now doing like some bluesy country sort of thing and chris will come back and play classic bakersfield style country or he'll play slide guitar for uh for six months or he'll play he can play like all the thin lizzie and Jimi hendrix stuff convincingly and so he can really do it he's not someone that can just and you know in the 80s he was a rock he was in a rockabilly band that had a hit on the radio and like he's he's been that. Yeah. I think everyone has has a love of music. It's just some people are want to put in the work to take it further than others. Yeah. Well, and I think that there's nothing wrong with somebody doing it as a hobby if 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 it's fun and it fulfills something in their life. I think that's great. Like right. it's I, I I don't think there's anything better than that, you know. I think it's really cool. It's just I see a difference when I think about who's traveling and for lack of a better example, Paul McCartney's band as opposed to who's playing the gig at the pub down the street right now. There's there is a difference there. Oh, absolutely. Um, Not everyone can be a Rusty Anderson or uh, or you know a uh, a Carter Beaufort. Right. There's like some with virtuosic talent, virtuosic talents. But also, all Carter Beaufort does is play drums all day. Right. I assume if he's not like eating or sleeping, I'm guessing he's probably behind a drum kit somewhere. And like you have to get to a certain level before you're that first call. And it there's given like anything in life, there's give and take. And so what do you want to give up in order to attain that? And is it worth it to you in the big picture? <laughs> exactly. Can music or art help people and in what ways? Like in a therapeutic sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think it can it can evoke an emotion and that's what it's designed to do. Certainly, I think any good art should evoke emotion. And if it makes you feel something and that something helps you like work through something else, that's nice. If you have lyrics that you can recite as a mantra for yourself, you know, that aren't like born to lose and destined to fail, which was a tattoo I once wanted to get. Wow. Yeah. All the tattoos I've ever wanted, like three years later, I've been oh, so glad. <laughs> you seem so glad I didn't relative, do that. <laughs> you seem relatively optimistic. I don't see that uh, being something you would... Ah, there was once a time. As long as you can, I don't know, like you'll have to do all the hard emotional work. But yeah, I think I think art can be helpful. I think it can help you process things. And if it's there to, to evoke emotion, inspire introspection, then certainly. What are skills that are important for everyone to learn? I don't know. I think everyone should probably learn how to cook at least a couple things because that's helpful. Everyone should learn how to... If one has a partner, people should probably learn how to speak to their partner about like issues you're having without it kind of blowing up and becoming a whole thing. So communicating. Communicating. Everyone should learn how to communicate well. And I don't know, learn how to research stuff and like vet stuff, you know, and you're not getting all your news from Facebook and we don't have measles outbreaks and, you know, the stuff. The, the stuff that we, that could be avoided. What are some social issues that people should care more about, in your opinion? 
I think there are many. I think we should really consider access to education in this country, I think is big. I think human human trafficking and sex trafficking, especially along the I-5 corridor, is something that really needs to be talked about more. This is one of the biggest human trafficking markets in, if not the country, the world. You know, up and down the West Coast and even into Canada, people, people come trying to run away from something or people looking to find themselves and they end up getting taken advantage of, picked up and sold into essentially slavery. And that's not happening like years ago. This is happening today, probably as we speak. So, I mean, like, that's pretty awful. Yeah, so you like, that's, that's pretty awful. bad. Yeah, that's really uh, bad. It's our environmental impact. As I sit here with my heater on, <laughs> does it need to be on? I mean, maybe, but it feels better if it is. <laughs> yeah. Our, our general environmental impact. I wish I wish I had better better answers for you. It's okay. Those are good answers. You don't have to solve all of them. I can't solve any of them. Maybe you can help by not contributing to them. Well, I, I don't think I'll be human trafficking anyone. For one, I don't have a car. can't move anyone. If you take cars away from everybody, then nobody can do it. Yeah, it would probably solve the environmental crisis as well. Well, at least put a dent in it. I think we should run we for president. We just solved it. All right. Good job, Nate. Our work here is done. Next. Next um, issue. What is it like working with musicians? Well, it's like working with anyone. You know, there's... They're like people? They're. It's almost like they're like people. Yeah. Or singers. Or singers. <laughs> Because singers aren't people? No, they're they're people, you know, just like less than. Oh, this is going to go so well. No, Love si- it. <laughs> si- you meet a lot of different people. I think you have to be sensitive of how other people are feeling. Yeah. And things like that. You have to be sensitive of how you approach an issue with, with anyone. It's uh, communication is key. And you, the biggest thing is to leave your ego at the door. I think that's huge. That goes a long way. Yeah. It was like, it, it goes a long way to like show up and not be a dick. And that's a lesson I learned the hard way. You did? Oh yeah. I think more for me is like, I thought I was being funny and I really wasn't. Uh, so it, fair enough. Well, I think you're funny. Even when you're tearing me down <laughs> and telling Michael Calloway he sucks. Yeah, but he needs to hear it. <laughs> Does he? No. Is it good for him? No, it's not no. good for him. Okay. He's a, uh, no, he, he's, he's a, very good. He's a phenomenal guitar player. Yes. Agreed. All right. So is there any way that we as artists and musicians can work together, help one another, and maintain creativity in our own vision for our own journey? Absolutely. A rising tide certainly raises all ships, and I think if the artistic community wasn't so clicky and kind of came together as a whole, at least in Portland or all around the world, we could give a voice to so many deserving artists. You know, someone like uh, someone like Anna Hoon in Portland. If you haven't heard her music, you really should. Or uh, Sweet and Juicy, a funk band in Portland. Should listen to them. They're they're great. Are any of them New Orleans transplants by any chance? Because I know there are quite a few musicians in Portland. I, d- that, I don't know. That came up from New Orleans. Funk and otherwise, but I know that's, that's a big style there. But mm. obviously, you can be born in Portland and still play funk music. You so can. It's true. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. All right, Nate. Are there any questions I should have asked you that I have not? Not, not that I can think of. It's been, it's been thorough. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's been good. Find out more at artmedianorthwest.com. A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W dot com. 